You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to open by reading the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2, continuing on in our series. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 2, 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you help me this morning? Uh, praying uh, this week and this morning already in the lobby, uh, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, that we would experience the love of Christ. And, and, and I have already just in our singing time. Would you be present by your spirit to speak to us? We know that you will, and we love you for it. Thank you that you are speaking, God. Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone have a favorite preacher? Obviously, I'm Norm's. <laughs> I, I know for a fact that I am my wife's as well, and that, that is amazing. She always tells me, and, and she's the real deal. So when she says, you're my favorite preacher, she means it. <clears throat> we all have preferences when it comes to preachers, don't we? You might have saw me coming up here and thinking, oh no, not again. <clears throat> There's Tim Keller, there's John Piper, there's Alistair Begg, there's MacArthur, there's David Platt, there's Paul Tripp, there's Norm Funk, there's so many more in our podcast, they're filled with them. What is, what it is, what is it about them that you like? Is it personality or style or charisma? Or is it something else? I had the privilege just the beginning of September to attend the Sing Conference. Anybody know what that is? Put on by the Gettys in Nashville, Tennessee. Went down there and spent three days. And one of my good friends is a CEO for Desiring God. And he said, Pat, I'd like to take you for dinner and as we had dinner together, 
we talked about John Piper, the man, and Josh said to me, Pat, John Piper is, is the real deal. There's no guile in this guy. He spends a lot of time up close and personal. Although broken, he, he's the real deal. He, he owns a couple of suits that are on rotation, if you've ever noticed. He doesn't take royalties, so I've heard from any of the books that he's written. He lives a simple godliness with contentment life. He's not that much of a looker. Sorry, John Piper. Don't let this get back to him. He does have a little bit of like mad scientist look, don't you think? <laughs> I, I wonder if we think about Paul the Apostle, if we would have listened to or been impressed at all by him. But we've been attracted to his preaching. One commentary writes in the second century Acts of Paul, Paul is described as a small, a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. There you go. Second Corinthians 10.10, Paul's opponents were saying his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Paul later in 2 Corinthians describes this thorn in the flesh that he has, and there's all kinds of debate about what that thorn potentially could be, but some would say that it could have been his chronic state of weakness. Um, but in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says that he will all the more gladly exult in this weakness because then the power of Christ will rest on him. And Jesus says to him, my power is made perfect in your weakness. This morning, the text that we're looking at, we're going to see in this text that this weak feeble, maybe not so impressive guy, has an unusual style. He has foolish content, but there's undeniable fruit. Strange, and yet, this is God's way. So, my first point is Paul's unusual style, and we Get that in verse 1, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In verse 3, in the beginning of 4, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is not, he's not, he doesn't have fear of man. It's more an awareness of the high and holy calling on his life. But he says, I was, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Now, Paul knows that his preaching style is not going to gather crowds because he's doing the opposite of what is attractive in Corinth at that time. 
Paul could have gone the way of the philosophers and the sophists of that day. After all, that's what was popular. Philosophers were praised for their oratory and their content. The sophists went above and beyond the philosophers. The sophists were looked up to by so many, and they were always gaining paying students, wanting to emulate them and be like them. They would take a theme and they would expiate it with convincing power. And those who could not match their standard were considered inferior. They were viewed as inferior. Here's Paul. His style is the opposite of lofty, highfalutin speech or the wisdom of the day or superiority or this high and mighty rhetoric. We learned last week in 1 Corinthians 1.17 that Paul has already said, for, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Words of human wisdom, the exact expression, or it should actually say, or the wisdom of words. So Paul's saying, I haven't come to you with the wisdom of words, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Lest we think Paul was unable to have this same style, we should know that Paul was a very well-educated man. He was a very smart man. He was a very effective communicator and speaker. As a matter of fact, Acts 14 tells us that pagans in Lystra identify Paul with Hermes, the Greek god of communication, because Paul was the chief speaker. In Acts 17, we read, we, it tells us of Paul debating and reasoning with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, and there he had no problem holding his own. Paul's resume was impressive in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And for righteousness, get this, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. I once thought, but now, now I consider them worthless. Why? He tells us, because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless, only when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. Did you hear what happened here? I once thought these things were of utmost value, and then I met Jesus Christ, my Lord, and now everything else is worthless in comparison. Comparison to the infinite value of knowing Christ. 
See, the goal of Paul's preaching style, this unusual preaching style, was that he wanted people to hear when he proclaimed Christ. He wanted people to say this when he proclaimed Christ. What a savior and not what a preacher. That was Paul's end goal. He didn't want style to trump the message. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, that we have a treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There's this very real sense that those who are ministering and proclaiming the word, what should happen is people should see with their visible eyes a physical jar of clay but with their spiritual eyes, they should be holding, be beholding a treasure as that preacher's proclaiming Christ. In Paul's mind, the gospel might be jeopardized by any kind of eloquence or rhetoric that does not strengthen the message of the crucified Savior. And so Paul is committed to a different style that looks nothing like the style of that day. Although Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, Paul knew this message to be the power and the wisdom of God. My second point, Paul's foolish content. He has an unusual style and he's got crazy content. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 2. In verse 1, we, we hear that he proclaimed the testimony of God. The testimony of God is what God has done in Christ, which is, as verse 2 tells us, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love how the message paraphrase this verse. This is how the message paraphrases. It says, I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus and who he is, then Jesus and what he did. Jesus who he is, then Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. God help us to keep it plain and simple. Jesus, who he is, and Jesus, what he did. May we never drift, may we never wander from Jesus, who he is, and Jesus, what he did. One man said, we never move on from the gospel only into a more profound understanding of the gospel. That should be true for all of us. In this letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul is he's going to speak to all kinds of other issues besides Jesus and him crucified. He's going to deal with marriage and singleness and sexuality and idolatry and gifts, the misuse of gifts and, and much more. But, but he's going to tie everything back to Jesus, who he is, and Jesus, what he has done, Christ and him crucified. Very interesting thing about Paul, that sizable portions of Paul's letters 
are always given to rehearsing the gospel truths long before he ever gets to speaking about the implications. So Ephesians chapter one to three is all gospel. Before he tells you at the beginning of Ephesians 4, I appeal to you to walk worthy of the calling that you've received, he's given you the gospel for three solid chapters. Colossians 1 and 2, before we get to 3, 4, and 5, and 6, is all gospel. Romans chapter 1 to 11 is all gospel. Paul, having his own heart and life radically transformed by the gospel, Paul's mission now is to proclaim one thing, one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was thinking about Paul's conversion this week in Acts 9 on his road to Damascus with permission to take Christians and put them in prison. And as he's on his way approaching Damascus, a bright light from heaven shines on Paul, falls to his knees, and, 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 and a voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. We know that Paul gets up and his eyes are open, but he can't see, and those who are with him heard the voice but didn't see anyone, and so they take him by the hand and they take him into Damascus, and there's a, there's a brother in Christ down the road on a street and God speaks and says, Ananias, I need you to go over there and lay your hands on, on Paul. And uh, Ananias is like, is that the guy that was coming here to lock me up? And the Lord's like, I got all kinds of really cool things for him to do. You just go do that. And I, it's one of the, my favorite stories in the Bible. Ananias just walks in there and said, brother Paul, I've been sent by the Lord, lays his hands on him, receives his sight. And listen what it says in verse 20 of Acts 9. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And he writes in 1 Timothy, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he can't take it any longer. And listen to, listen to this, when we see Jesus Christ and we, when we proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, it must lead to doxology or there is something wrong. He blows up and says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. When we get it, Christ who he is and Christ what he has done 
No one will ever have to say to us, sing it like you mean it. Charles Spurgeon, prince of preachers in the 19th century, musing about Paul's resolve as he enters Corinth. Listen what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, before I enter the gate of Corinth, this is my firm determination. He's talking of, as if Paul were, if any good is to be done there, if any are led to believe in Christ the Messiah, their belief shall not be the result of hearing the gospel. Sorry, their re- belief shall be the result of hearing the gospel and not of my eloquence. It shall never be said, oh, No wonder that Christianity spreads. See what an able advocate it has. Rather, it shall be said, how mighty must be the grace of God which has convinced these persons by such simple preaching and brought them to know the Lord Jesus Christ by such humble instrumentality as that of the Apostle Paul. Another commentary writes and said, God doesn't need some, someone powerful and clever to achieve his ends with the gospel. He does not need the myriad of an- anecdotes and jokes that are heard in pulpits around the nation today. He needs people who are servants of Christ who model humility and frailty as they preach of the one who was despised and rejected and who suffered even death on a cross. Christ and him crucified. It's foolish content in our day, just as foolish as it was in Paul's day. But that is the message we must proclaim. What you win them with, you win them too. I, I was reading this this morning and I... I I, I had to, I, I think I want to share this one too because uh, Charles Spurgeon again, Spurgeon was going to preach somewhere and he, he was late because his train had been delayed and when he arrived at the church, he found that the service had been going on for some time and uh, they didn't wait for him. The sermon had already begun and the preacher was none other than his grandfather. Charles Spurgeon's grandfather is preaching. When his grandfather saw him, he said, here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. And Charles responded, you can preach better than I can too. But his grandfather wouldn't agree, so Spurgeon went up to the pulpit and he took over the preaching duties. Could you imagine just doing a, like a tag team? Your turn. They're in this sermons, and Spurgeon began to explain how faith through, through the text was for grace, you've been saved through faith. The text, he began explaining how faith is a conduit of God's grace, and he moved on to how we, can, we cannot save ourselves, not by works. And as he was expounding total human weakness and moral inability, he felt his coattail being pulled from behind. It was his grandfather who then stood up and took his turn again. Are we gonna, I wonder if we're ever going to do this at Midtown. Um, 
He took his turn again for about five minutes on human depravity, then he gave it back to his grandson, but stayed right nearby. When Spurgeon then took over and spoke more of God's amazing grace, in saving us, his grandfather called out, yes, yes, Charles, tell him again, tell him again. And after Spurgeon preached a little more on grace, he cried out, tell them again, Charles, and again, and again. Do you know what you need more than anything? You don't need to be adjusted and corrected and beat up for, for what you're not doing. You need to be reminded afresh of the grace and the mercy of our Savior Jesus Christ because I'm telling you, that is fuel in your tank to make you want to love him more. Tell him again. To my dying breath, Father, would you make me a man who tells them again and again and again, make us a church, make us community group leaders that tell our community groups again and again, make us people who serve in the lobby and people who, who serve in children's ministry, make us a people who tells them again and again and again. So here he is, he's crazy style, he's got a foolish message, but he has undeniable fruit, why? Paul says, my message, Christ and him crucified, came to you in, in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That message will always be accompanied by power because that message is the wisdom and the power of God. That message will always produce fruit, lasting fruit. Paul, in other words, is saying, I proclaimed a message that you gave me. I was faithful to that. And as I did it, I relied on the Holy Spirit to do his work as promised. The results belong to him. Midtown, all pressure is off. Don't we just walk around with so much pressure all the time? It's off. All pressure is off. When the Holy Spirit does his work, people change. When you do the work, you watch how ugly it gets. And, and he, he says the, the, the work of the Spirit is that people's faith rests on God's power on what God did rather than you somehow maybe trying to manipulate or, or do something that you're going to get them in and hopefully keep them here with. We're, we're not just transferring information when we preach. Preaching is to be in demonstration of the Spirit's power and those who are sitting in the room and listening. It, it should be like an Emmaus Road experience. Do you remember that in Luke 24? Do you remember Jesus risen from the dead and, and the, late, the women go to the tomb and he's not there and, 
and uh, the disciples go and check, and he's he's not there, and they're all they're all in a kerfuffle, and and some guys, some followers of Jesus, are walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them. And in verse twenty-seven of Luke twenty-four, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. And, 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 and when Jesus vanished from them uh, as he came to eat with them and to be with them, when Jesus vanished, they said to each other, listen to this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Every Sunday should be a moment where our hearts burn within us when we open the scriptures. Because God by his spirit is speaking and it is the power of God unto salvation. And so we need to pray, God, would you do what only you can do so that only you can get the glory? There's no desire on Paul's part to manipulate people with wise words or anything else to get them into the kingdom. He wanted their faith to rest in the power of God. He wants, to be able, wants them to be able to say, God did this. Because I want to tell you what, the Christian life is tough, and if God didn't do it, you will never make it. You will never make it. Life-transforming conversions can only come about by the power of God. In closing, what... What's your preaching style? You're like, what? I thought that's what happens here on Sunday. Absolutely. This is a, a vital, necessary means of God's grace. What do we do with texts like Romans 10, 13 to 15? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. How are you doing? Is your style getting in the way? Or is it an unusual style, but it's an unusual style that they see something of the fragrance of Christ in you? Is your content, I gotta do a bunch of other things because the message of Christ and him crucified is a very difficult and people just get agitated and upset at me, so I'll, I'll build it up, I'll, 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 I'll pat it a little bit so that people don't get too offended with it. Are, 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 are you wanting people to be impressed by your amazing personality or your level of gifting? Or, or do you just want to proclaim with gentleness and humility and graciousness a crucified Savior and your life, your life is a jar of clay, but people see the treasure. They see that you live for him. They see that all your hope and your trust is in him and you're trusting alone in the Holy Spirit to change lives. God, make us that church. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for, thank you for reminding us in our singing time already just how amazing it is who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for reminding us in our the scriptures this morning that all we need is to be a jar of clay and that carries the message of Christ and him crucified and and you are the one who will bring about fruit. And so we give ourselves, everyone in this room, I pray that they would give themselves to you afresh this morning that they might be a means of your grace to proclaim Christ. We love you and we thank you in your great name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.